With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Investigating and reporting on government corruption and overreach. You're listening to Scott Wheeler and Through the Looking Glass on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to Through the Looking Glass. I'm Scott Wheeler broadcasting from the Washington, D.C. area in the shadow of the Capitol where protests have been taking place. One great protest, uh, great as in size, enormity. Nearly 300,000 people came to Washington, D.C. on Tuesday to march on the mall, simply asking for peace, uh, at peace in the way that uh, means Islamic extremists such as Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad cannot come into their country and slaughter innocent women and children. Uh, that rally took place when 300 uh, the march for israel as it was called 300,000 showed up to march on washington and the great natan saransky spoke at the event it was uh, uh very peaceful unlike the other the palestinian uh the pro terrorist marches that have taken place where vandalism violence have broken out including one on Thursday night uh, near the DNC headquarters. The very monsters the DNC have created are now turning on them. The pro-terrorist uh, faction of the Democrat Party is has turned on it and is attacking it for not sympathizing with Hamas. It's shocking. And for those who like to... Uh, before we get started today, we're going to speak to Gordon Chang, an author uh, and China expert, uh, and uh, we're going to get to the Biden Xi summit here shortly. But first, let me talk a little bit about the violence in the Middle East and uh, the attacks on Israel and the incessant anti-Semitism that is taking place throughout the world at the moment, and, and particularly in the United States. Uh, for those who say that the Palestinians are just innocent victims trapped in Gaza by Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad, to uh, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, of course, is a Shia-backed terrorist group, and Hamas is a Sunni terrorist organization that is also backed by the Shia Iran. Now, before we get to other matters. There was a poll taken at, uh, just last spring in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, the West Bank, Gaza is the strip, Gaza Strip is to the west of Israel, and the West Bank is on, it refers to the West Bank of the Jordan River, where the West Bank part of the Palestinian occupied territory is. And there was a poll taken last spring and uh, as we know we pointed this out before on this broadcast that uh, uh, Gaza the Gazans in 2006 all the Jews pulled out the Israeli government forced the Jews to leave Gaza and abandon their property and turned the whole thing over to the Palestinians in 2005 2006 the Gazans went to the polls and elected Hamas 
the terrorist organization, a group that had been on the global terrorist organization list for years, almost a decade at the time they went and elected them to run their government. Well, many have said, well, yes, but they only had one election, so they didn't, haven't had a chance to unelect uh, or elect someone else instead of Hamas. The Gazans shouldn't be held responsible now for this. Well, here's the question, a poll question that was asked of Palestinians who live in Gaza and in the West Bank, and it was, how much do you support the military operation carried out by the Palestinian resistance led by Hamas on October 7th? Okay, this is the question that was posed recently to the Palestinians about the, the attack by Hamas on October 7th, okay? Extremely support in the West Bank, 68.3% extremely support. Now, this is supposed to, this is, uh, the West Bank is governed by Fatah, or supposedly the quote-unquote more peaceful Palestinians. 68.3% extremely supported the brutal attack of October 7th on Israel, somewhat support 14.8%. So somewhat or extremely support puts you 82% in the, in the supposedly more moderate part of the Palestinians in the West Bank. Neither support or does not oppose is 8.4%. Somewhat do not support 3.3%, extremely against 3.6. So those who were against the attacks amounted to about uh, 7% in the West Bank. And those who didn't support or oppose were 8.4%. The rest, about 82, 83%, supported the brutal attacks, including killing babies, women, and children in a, a sneak attack on innocent civilians in Israel. So before you uh, start genning up in tears for the Palestinians, now that was the, as I said, the moderate faction of the Palestinians, or the quote-unquote moderate faction of the Palestinians in the West Bank. Here's in Gaza, the very place where the attack came from. 46.6% extremely support. 17% somewhat support. So in Gaza itself, 63%, uh, almost 64% either somewhat or extremely supported the attacks on innocent civilians in Israel. Neither support nor opposes 14.4%. Uh, and then about 20% either somewhat do not support or ex were extremely against it. Extremely against it were about 12.6%. Somewhat did not support was about 8%. So there, from Gaza itself, 64% either somewhat supported or ex extremely supported the violent attacks on innocent civilians. So before you have any sympathy or shed tears for the Palestinians, they do have a choice. They have a choice not to support terrorism, and they do anyway.
So it, you've got to think about this in terms of what to, uh, who, who you actually are supporting and what they stand for. And that's where we are right now. Uh, that's, uh, it, it's sad. It's sad. Okay. Uh, coming up, we're going to speak with Gordon Chang about the Biden G summit. We're going to be talking about that this hour. Uh, Gordon Chang is the author of several books and is considered a, uh, China expert, uh, and uh, he is uh, indeed knows uh, probably one of the leading authorities on China. But we're going to talk about China this hour because I've spent years, decades indeed, uh, starting with the mid-1990s, my first trip to China, investigating tech transfers and tech thefts that were occurring from the United States. In 1992, few people remember this. 1992, there were uh, the the that was the uh, election between uh, George H. W. Bush running for re-election and then Arkansas Governor Bill Clinton. In that election, there were several things that that were that were frequently brought up. Uh, you know, one of course was the economy, but about second or third on the list was human rights in China. And Bill Clinton had the uh, uh, was on the trail in, in 1992 criticizing George H.W. Bush. And a, this is not a defense of George H.W. Bush. Please understand that. But in fact, a lot of people, a lot of China hawks at the time who were not Democrats, were criti quietly critical of H.W. Bush because they thought he was a little bit easy and light on China. And he had been uh, the uh, ambassador to China at one point. And many thought that, and he had also been a CIA director, many thought that he was uh, soft, had a soft spot for the communist Chinese uh, for those reasons. And so Bill Clinton was on the campaign stump in 1992. And he, what was he saying? He was criticizing H.W. Bush for, quote, coddling the butchers of Beijing. Coddling the butchers of Beijing, who he referred to, uh, the, those, uh, the communist in uh, China, the leaders. At the time, it was uh, uh, Mao Zedong. I'm sorry, not Mao Zedong. It was uh, 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 not Jiang Zemin. It was the one before Jiang Zemin. It was uh, uh, went from Chairman Mao to uh, uh, it'll come in. It'll come to me in a second. Sorry. Um, anyway, in 92, 1992, uh, uh, Clinton was criticizing Bush for coddling the butchers of Baghdad. Interesting. Uh, thought considering the Democrats' uh, anti-war posture against the war in Iraq. But in 92, he was saying uh, that Bush coddled, uh, 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 coddled dictators from Baghdad to Beijing, and he referred to the communist Chinese as the butchers of Beijing. And he... Uh, it, that was Clinton himself and the media, of course, in 92 was raising these questions about human rights in China. 
it was uh, just three years uh, following the uh, Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989, uh, where we saw the communists, uh, the CCP, Chinese Communist Party, put down uh, rebels, people seeking freedom. And so Clinton sought to tap into that in 1992 and criticized heavily Bush, even though Bush put in to effect that what what's what was known as the Tiananmen Square sanctions and it uh after uh, uh after Tiananmen Square and Clinton dismantled it essentially after he took office but 92 he was praising he was attacking Bush for being soft on China we're going to take a short time out when we come back we'll be joined by the aforementioned uh, Gordon Chang who's an author and uh, expert on China uh, matters and the CCP. So stay tuned. You're listening to Through the Looking Glass on the great TNT radio. I'm Scott Wheeler. Uh, we'll be right back after this. You should hear what Chris Smith is talking about. Discipline in the classroom. And of course, as someone who was schooled in Australia in an era when corporal punishment reigned, I fully appreciate how difficult it is now for teachers to maintain discipline. It would be incredibly tough. And over the decades, as I've hosted thousands of hours of talk radio programs, I can't tell you how many teachers have told me on air how bad behaviour, misbehaviour forced them out of the job, forced them to actually leave the teaching fraternity entirely. A lack of discipline is chronically disruptive to the entire class and even worse for the disruptor. And so when Victorian Liberal MLC Renee Heath spoke to us yesterday about the OECD's Disciplinary Climate Index, I didn't know they had one, I was blown away. 15-year-olds here in Australia are amongst the most disruptive and disorderly in the world. And that they right. rank, in fact, number 69 out of 76 school systems. Wow! Worldwide. Australian educators should be ashamed of that close to rock bottom status. And secondly, this could be a prime reason for Australia's pathetic international educational outcomes. Chris Smith on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. I'm just going to do a little voice I wanted to alleviate my pain. I also didn't want to be who I was. I always just felt like there was just something wrong with me and I was trying to figure it out and I used the internet to help me do that. Seemingly out of nowhere, we've suddenly seen a huge spike in media depictions and social media depictions of transgenderism. It's even reached the mainstream advertising world. The people who are consuming this are children, 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's so easy for them to literally be groomed I just woke up one day, looked at myself in the mirror, and asked myself, what the heck am I doing? When trans-identified kids are referred to specialized gender clinics, they're often told that they're going to get comprehensive, multidisciplinary mental health assessments. We know that that's not true. I was easy to manipulate. The ideology that has become dominant at these clinics is that trans kids know who they are, and therefore to question them is completely taboo. My childhood was ruined. Who's there for their detransitioning? Nobody. Nobody would help me because they had more concerns of me reversing everything. Did this thing to alleviate this gender dysphoria that wasn't there before, but you made it into a problem, and now your body image issues are worse. That's not supposed to happen. What do we do now? D-Trans, 
The Dangers of Gender-Affirming Care. For more information, go to PragerU.com. Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. Welcome back to Through the Looking Glass. I'm Scott Wheeler on TNT Radio. China sees the 21st century as its opportunity for global dominance. The Chinese, uh, Chinese Communist Party has calculated its ascension, stated its objectives, and is engaged in global interference through its Belt and Road Initiative and geopolitical strategies that weaken the United States while it moves to take over. Uh, Joining us now is Gordon G. Chang. Uh, He is author of The Coming Collapse of China, The Great U.S.-China Tech War, and the just-released China is Going to War. Uh, You can find him on uh, Twitter at Gordon G. Chang at Gordon G. Chang. Mr. Chang, welcome to Through the Looking Glass, and thank you uh, very much for joining us today. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Wheeler. It's my pleasure. Uh, Tell us about um, this. One of the things that uh, was troubling, it seemed, leading up to the uh, Xi Biden summit was that uh, Xi was not returning Biden's phone calls. We don't hear that much about that anymore, but Xi was kind of stooking Biden on this by not uh, taking his phone calls, and it made Biden appear to be kind of like a third-world president trying to get a meeting with a U.S. president. Did it seem like that to you, or did you see it differently? Oh, certainly. Uh, You know, if, if they're not taking our calls, we shouldn't take their calls. It's as simple as that. China tries to use um, all sorts of little diplomatic stratagems like this to make us feel desperate. And they've been very successful in the Biden administration because President Biden believes that it's absolutely essential to maintain channels of communication to China. And yes, that sounds responsible. Yes, that sounds like it should work. But in reality, the Chinese don't pick up the phone, even if there is a channel of communication when they don't want to. So, you know, I think that it's sort of worthless to try to establish these dialogue mechanisms, because when the Chinese want to talk to us, they'll call us. And if they don't want to talk to us, no matter how many uh, things we have established, how many mechanisms, whatever, they're not going to answer the phone. Do Does it make uh, the U.S., did China really sort of embarrass the Biden administration and make the U.S. look weak on the world stage as we're trying to reach out to them? They're saying, we don't have time for you. Does it make the U.S. look weak or does it make China look uh, foolish, would you say? It makes, there's a little bit of both, but most of it, it makes us look weak that we are chasing China. And we know this from Chinese propaganda because In the past, when, for instance, Biden had those five phone or video calls with Xi Jinping, Chinese news releases would always start out with, at the request of President Biden, or at the request of the U.S., blah, blah, blah. So we know that they believe that that's important. So by trying to chase them, we actually make the Chinese more aggressive because we're emboldening them. And if we were to stop that, if we were not to chase them, then I think that they would sit up and take notice. And got to remember that these guys in China right now are desperate. Um, Their economy is falling apart. They've got so many simultaneous crises. They need American help. So why should we actually appear desperate to talk to them? If they want something from us, let them ask. Let them come here. 
Do you see, uh, uh, in your research, did you find that China interferes in U.S. elections? Yes, absolutely. Uh, first of all, there's the um, above the surface interference. So, for instance, in 2020, um, the, um, the Chinese propaganda machine was full on uh, for Biden over Bernie Sanders. And then in the general election, of course, they were supporting Biden over Trump. But that's the above board stuff. And you could say, well, that's legitimate. But we also know that below the surface, their um, troll farms, uh, their social media um, has been very much in favor of um, the Democratic Party, um, which is not to say that uh, they'll always be that way. I mean, they love some Republicans, especially conservative Republicans, free traders, who sort of feed into the CCP narrative. But the point is that in the elections in 2020, they not only were um, going below the surface with their troll operations, they were also funneling money to the Democratic Party in small amounts from foreign sources. And that has been documented, but there has really been no investigation on the part of the FBI as to that. Because it is hard to track, I understand that, but there is a lot of Chinese money coming surreptitiously into the 2020 election. I'm sure it's going to be the same way this time. Well, back in 1992 and 1996, it wasn't so surreptitious. In fact, we, uh, my investigation, I went to China and investigated the uh, money laundering operations where you had uh, bagmen like uh, Wang Jinan, or known better as John Wong here in the U.S., and uh, Charles Yaolin Tree, who were bringing money from communist China uh, to the Clinton re-election campaign in 96, but also uh, what we found when we really dug deep was they had a long-standing relationship and they actually poured money into Clinton's 1992 campaign. And there was a point at which Charlie Tree, who owned a restaurant in Little Rock, Arkansas, where Clinton was governor, uh, he he was Clinton was warned by the FBI that China was funneling money to him. And all of a sudden, China, uh, Charlie Tree stopped making donations to Clinton, Clinton's campaign in 92. A very curious maneuver. None of these guys, uh, uh, the, the guy who got the worst treatment by the Reno Justice Department for this was the guy who cooperated, uh, Johnny Chung, uh, a Los Angeles uh, area businessman who I, I spent hours with interviewing him for a documentary. And he funneled like $300,000 to the DNC. And then he became turned over state's evidence, became a key witness, got the worst sentence of any of these guys, including Wong, who had a security clearance working at the uh, Justice Department and had a longstanding connection to a company called China Resources, uh, which was thought to be and still is thought to be a uh, spy apparatus of the of the. Chinese military. Um, why do you think there is no real investigation of all of these things? There was like a pseudo investigation of this in the 90s, but there was very, there's been very little since. And as you point out, China does get involved in U.S. elections. Yeah, there are a couple of things going on here. Of course, there's a political bias, but the, by far, I think the most important reason why these things don't get investigated is that the FBI is just overwhelmed by China. 
um, you know, they open up, they say a new China investigation once every two hours or something like that. Um, but they're not investigating nearly all of um, the things that they could. Um, you know, just, just to give you an example of how pervasive China's efforts are. China first contacted Eric Swalwell, the Democratic representative from California, not when he was on the House Intelligence Committee where he, of course, would be of great value for China. But when he was on the city council in Dublin City, California, which means they're grooming, you know, not just one Swalwell, but many of them. And this is not to say that Swalwell did anything wrong. I mean, if, if, if it were wrong to be contacted by the Ministry of State Security, we wouldn't have any federal government. I mean, there just would be no Congress. There would be no... Uh, administrators, there'd be no president, there'd be no vice president. So that's not what I'm complaining about. What I'm complaining about, or trying to point out, is that China's attempt to influence the American political system is pervasive. So we're talking hundreds of Swalwells, maybe even thousands of Swalwells. And that's just the political system. We're talking about business, um, academia, state governments, federal government, you name it the FBI is completely overwhelmed. And so uh, if you could explain a little bit how Chinese espionage operations work, we know that uh, a lot of people, a lot of people from China come here seeking freedom and in exchange for getting a, a visa out, the, the government will come and descend upon them and demand that they do certain things to help the CCP back in, in the PRC. And these people have no choice that uh, they are uh, not to necessarily desirous of helping the Chinese government, but they kind of are put in a, in a very precarious position if they don't. Is that a, a good assessment? Yes, absolutely. And it's not just people who, uh, on condition of getting a visa, have to do what the regime wants. It's already Chinese nationals who are here. So, for instance, it's standard operating procedure for um, either consular officials or Ministry of State security agents to visit um, people of ethnic Chinese origin, some citizens, some permanent residents, some just on visas, and say, if you don't do what we want, you know, your mother back in China is going to have an extremely difficult time going forward. So there's a lot of that. And also, um, the Chinese consular officials and, again, Ministry of State security agents, they surveil the hundreds of thousands of American students, uh, Chinese students in our universities and our colleges, um, and they coerce them to doing things that Beijing wants. Now, we got to understand here that, yes, the Chinese are um, violating our sovereignty, but, you know, Scott, we've known about this. American presidents from Biden going back to basically George H.W. Bush have known about this, and we've allowed this to occur. This is our country. We allow this to occur. This is our fault. And if the American people want to be really angry at somebody, yes, they should be angry at Xi Jinping, but they should also be angry at Joe Biden for allowing this to occur on our soil. This is, uh, you, you make an excellent I'll calm point. Down Do now. you? <laughs> the the U.S. has permitted this to happen. We saw it in the '90s, and at that time, it was a little, it was a, probably a little better environment for him because you had a lot of the, as you pointed out, conservative Republicans thought that the way to 
change China from within was to bring them into the free market fold. And then they would uh, see the light and change their their ways. But it really didn't work uh, in that res respect. And a lot of those free market Republicans have come back and now they're all writing books, lecturing us about how dangerous China is, including those of us who were saying it all along. How And I should separate the CCP from the people of China. The people of China are victims of the Communist Party there, uh, is my old, old and late friend Harry Wu used to explain frequently that uh, the people are being victimized, as he was put in a law guy camp for political re-education. Um, uh, it's kind of on the U.S. now for allowing this to take place, allowing students to come in, including some that are come in innocuous with and being forced and coerced to provide information and others uh, like uh, a student named Hong Baoyu, who I found uh, about 20 years ago was working on a highly sensitive project at Penn State uh, Weapons Laboratory and had been working on that same exotic material in a Chinese, in a uh, US uh, or a uh, uh, PLA, People's Liberation Army, uh, exercise uh, uh, operation in China just prior to coming here and uh, admitted to me in an interview that he was in regular contact with his former professor there who was working with this uh, exotic material. So if the United States continues to allow this, at what point does it no longer become China's fault and it becomes the, the United States government's fault? Well, it's, it's, it's both. Um, but, you know, we've passed that point a long time ago where, you know, the U.S. government is innocent. But the, the point here is that we have, you know, you mentioned the engagement theory. So we have four Chinese consulates. We have perhaps as many as nine um, Chinese police stations still on American soil. We've got Chinese banks. We've got Chinese enterprises. Um, we have Chinese-dominated associations, um, and they, uh, the regime uses them to get what it wants. So what we need to do, and this is hard for Americans or many Americans to accept, we just need to expel um, these institutions and locations. So I don't think China should have any consulates in our country. Now, China will close our consulates in China, but I think that's actually a good thing because that means fewer potential hostages for Beijing. And I also think we need to strip the embassy staff in Washington down just to the ambassador and his family. Um, yeah, we need to talk to China, but we don't need to have a cast of hundreds in Washington, D.C. So we can eliminate a lot of the um, elements of coercion that Beijing uses in our country. And we need to do that if we're going to maintain our country. I mean, we could lose America because China's influence here has become so pervasive. And as I say, you got you got leftists, but you also got free market Republicans who, although they are not Chinese communists, actually provide substantial assistance to the communists by maintaining a free market philosophy where it should no longer apply. That's an excellent point. And when you you talk about the big business in the United States who wants to who wants to do business in China. They don't learn from the mistakes of other businesses that went there, provided, uh, well, uh, uh, McDonnell Douglas, a classic example of that, uh, 
China demanded, agreed to buy 100 planes from them if they would transfer a silkworm missile factory uh, from uh, Columbus, Ohio to China. We, and uh, there were a lot of pro pro prohib prohibitions on that transfer uh, that said you cannot use this to make missiles. And of course they did. Within six months, they were producing mi missiles with it. And we tried to reclaim it and we couldn't, but and they never did buy the airplanes from McDonnell Douglas. This has happened repeatedly with other businesses, and yet we never seem to learn our lesson. And it seems like no one at the Commerce Department is warning these big corporations before they go into these deals with China um, that uh, they are going to be taken for a ride. Yeah, this is this is, you know, obviously business is well, business will do whatever it can to make money and they don't consider national security considerations. But this is up to the president of the United States who can use his authority under the International Emergency Economic Powers Act of 1977 or in the alternative, the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917. And yes, China is an enemy because they call us an enemy. Um, to get American business off Chinese soil, um, because we know um, what happens. It's, uh, all the things that you said and more. And in addition, they're now holding Americans as hostages, innocent Americans. And President Biden actually talked about that in his post-meeting press conference on Wednesday. Um, he mentioned uh, Americans who have been held in China and are still there. And it's not just Americans, of course, it's, it's many other nationalities. But we need to distance ourselves from China as fast as possible, because we do not want to give business the incentive to be propagating Communist Party narratives and supporting and lobbying for um, China in Washington. So we need to distance ourselves. And it means more than just de-risking the phrase of the moment, it means severing, decoupling, once and for all. Is it Did the U.S. make a mistake of allowing China to take over too much of our industrial base? And is that one of the things that keeps us connected to them? Absolutely. Um, and, you know, there was the feeling after the Cold War that, as you point out, that uh, you know, it was the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama famously wrote. Um, so we didn't have to worry about hardline regimes anymore because they would see it in their interest to integrate into the existing international system. Um, you know, Biden calls China a competitor, quote unquote. Well, that's not really right, because when you talk about competition, it means within the existing international system, which, by the way, has been in place since 1648 with the Peace of Westphalia. China is not even an adversary. It is an enemy, and it is an enemy that is trying to overthrow that system and replace it with worldwide Chinese rule. And yeah, that sounds ludicrous, but Xi Jinping has consistently throughout this century been trying to impose China's imperial era system where Chinese emperors believed that they had the mandate of heaven to rule what they called Tianxia, or all under heaven. And if we think that ruling planet Earth is bad enough, since 2017, Chinese officials have been talking about the moon and Mars as sovereign Chinese territory. So we're dealing with the most ambitious aggressor in history. We got to understand what these guys are saying. You know, we're Americans, so we don't pay attention to propaganda. But we didn't pay attention to Osama bin Laden's propaganda either. And look where that got us.
Well, Gord, it's a very good point. Uh, we've been speaking with uh, Gordon Chang. He is an export expert on China and has uh, uh, really uh, been uh, very informative. He is the author of The Coming Collapse of China, The Great U.S.-China Tech War, and most recently, the just released China is Going to War. You can reach him on uh, Twitter at, uh, at GordonChang.com at gordonchang.com. Uh, Mr. Chang, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the broadcast. Thank you so much. Well, it's been a real pleasure talking to you, Scott, so thank you. We'll take a short time out. We'll come back with more. There's uh, still some to cover uh, after these messages. The climate agenda is a national security risk. Where do you hear this? From Washington, D.C., this is the Morano Minute with your host, TNT Radio's Mark Morano. The climate and energy policies of California are threatening the security of residents. California has increased crude oil imports from foreign countries from 5% just 25 years ago to more than 75% today. According to Heartland analyst Ronald Stein, California is the only state in the United States that imports most of its crude oil feedstock to instant state refineries from foreign countries. California needs this oil for nine international airports and 41 military airports, as well as shipping ports up and down the coast. Meanwhile, Asia has 88 new oil refineries manufacturing fuel for California's airports and shipping terminals. It's time we recognize that the climate agenda is a national security threat. This is Mark Morano for the Morano Minute on TNT Radio. Are you ready to help your family get prepared for the unexpected? Here we go! Ladybug and Cat Noir know how important it is to be ready. Because you never know when Hawk Moth is going to strike or a disaster will hit. And you don't need miraculous powers. Just put those planning skills you already have to good use. Make a plan that will help you and your family be ready when emergencies happen. Ready Kids can help. Get started at ready.gov kids. Investigating and reporting on government corruption and overreach. You're listening to Scott Wheeler and Through the Looking Glass on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Through the Looking Glass. I'm Scott Wheeler, broadcasting from the shadow of Washington, D.C. And uh, we just spent the last 20 minutes speaking with uh, Gordon Chang, who uh, author and one of the leading experts on China these days, and I, I should should have mentioned during the that uh, part of that segment, but uh, there's very few experts on China who I would yield to, but uh, Gordon Chang is one of them. He's one of the few who actually knows more about this subject than do I, and I've spent uh, the last uh, 23, 24 years, uh, I actually take that back, nearly 30 years now, uh, investigating China and its uh, involvement in U.S. elections and espionage operations. I'm, the Department of Defense and the FBI have actually credited me with uh, catching a communist Chinese spy inside the United States attempting to uh, s- steal high technology with regard to a uh, substance. Actually, this, we'll get right into that now. Part of the communist Chinese strategy is to control U.S. politicians through bribery and election interference. The following evidence reveals how that strategy has compromised our political system. In a 2013 speech, Joe Biden 
sort of joked about his relationship with the new Chinese president, Xi Jinping. Quote, I graduated him on his elevation. I asked if he could possibly help me, unquote. Wow. <laughs> Interesting uh, statement he made. That was Biden in 2013. China had already been helping Joe Biden's family business. And in the years since that remark, China has invested millions of dollars in the Biden family enterprises run by his son, Hunter, and his brother, James. In August, during an appearance on Fox News Channel's Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Bartiromo, Director of National Intelligence John Ratcliffe, that was, uh, this was 2020, August of 2020, said that the People's Republic of China is a threat to this year's presidential election and that it favors Joe Biden. That was 2020. China, quote, China is using a massive and sophisticated influence campaign that dwarfs anything that any other country is doing, unquote, Ratcliffe said, which is kind of ironic when you think about it. Democrats love to talk about foreign influence and foreign influence in our elections. The reality is China has been influencing elections since in this country in a dramatic way since 1992. In fact, millions of dollars they devoted and you know in today's campaigns a billion dollars seems like uh, uh to to uh, today's campaigns which for president they'll spend a billion dollars uh, doesn't uh, a few million doesn't seem like a lot but in 1996 i think it was less than 100 million was the amount of money and china came poured in uh just in direct campaign contributions to bill clinton somewhere between four and 10 million that we can identify. So it was substantial between 4% and 10% of campaign funds for Bill Clinton came from communist China in the 1996 election. And no one talks about that. They've done similar things ever since. Um, following is the history of 28 years actually 30 years of communist China influence in U.S. elections. For the past 30 years, People's Republic of China has been engaged in high-level efforts to steal military technology from the United States. Many of those efforts were aided by the Clinton administration and other Democrats. Many Democrats currently in the House of Representatives and in the Senate actively sought to obstruct justice by interfering with official investigations of their collaboration with communist China. Let me give you a few names of people still in office. Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Dick Durbin. There's three right there. PRC espionage um, has got, as they've sought our, uh, our, uh, advances in what's called the development of exotic materials. What's an exotic material? Well, there's some, there's a substance called Turfinel D. It's terbium, dysprosium, and iron smelted in a certain way. And when this substance is smelt, it's uh, without getting into too many details, some of which may still be classified despite the fact that China stole this formula from us it's jet quenched in a certain way that provides 
makes this substance, there are lanthanides and rare earths, terbium and dysprosium, smelted a certain way with, with iron, it becomes what some scientists des describe as a magical material. It reacts with 500,000 pounds of reactive force to a magnetic field. So if you think of it, it changes shapes. In other words, if you took a, p a piece of this turf and LD and you applied a magnetic uh, field to it, it would change shapes and expand in whatever direction it's coerced and, and quenched into doing with 500,000 pounds of force. Now, uh, again, without getting into specifics about what this would mean, it means fighter wing technology that uh, in order for a fighter, wing, for example, they call it an envelope when you have a fighter jet and you have a fighter jet that can make very tight turns at high speed. That's essential for a fighter jet to be able to outmaneuver other planes. One of the problems you have with that is the stress or the G-forces on the structure of the plane. That's why if you've noticed Fighter jets have very tight wing structure, which means that it requires more speed, more ground speed and airspeed to maintain its flight. The kind of passenger jets most people fly on have giant wings that spread way out, uh, and uh, that requires lower speed to gain, uh, to, to gain altitude. A fighter jet is different. It, it has a very tight wingspan it's to give it tight turning radius. Now, if you could change the shape of a fighter wing mid-flight, it could handle more G-forces and become more lethal in a dogfight. Now, think about that. Now, I'm not saying that's what the U.S. uses Turfinel D for, but I can tell you with certainty that's what China has been using Turfinel D, this amazing uh, exotic material for use in its fighter jets. And uh, it is striking. Investigators uh, found that China had placed students in, an Amer in American universities to gain secret information about this turf and LD, valuable industrial military uses. Uh, and um, the US Navy spent millions to develop turf and LD in the 1980s. And intelligence experts estimate that the People's Republic of China devoted extensive resources to steal it, including uh, I saw during my investigation, I saw a picture of of uh, Xi Jinping, uh, not Xi Jinping, uh, uh, the predecessor, the uh, successor to Deng Xiaoping. Deng was who took over at, uh, Mao Zedong. Uh, I forgot his name earlier. Deng Xiaoping was the leader of China who died um, in uh, 1996. And then uh, Li Ping took over. And uh, I uh, saw a picture of a guy who had been a student at a Naval Ordnance Laboratory in Ames, Iowa. He was an Iowa, a student at Iowa State University. He had been a uh, he had been working at the Naval Ordnance Laboratory where Turf and LD was developed. That's what the uh, Turf and LD. It's T E R F E. T E R is is uh, terbium. F E is iron. 
NL, NOL, Turfinol, the NOL is Naval Ordnance Laboratory dash D. D is dysprobium. So terbium, dysprosium, iron developed at a Naval Ordnance Laboratory. I saw an image of that guy with the leader of China after they had stolen Turfinol D. And uh, they were in a lab where they were doing that to, uh, work with that exotic material stolen from the uh, Ames uh, Laboratory. Those who worked with the exotic material called it almost magical. It changes shape when you apply a magnetic field to it. Um, and um, says uh, one scientist who actually worked on the project for the United States. Uh, scientists and engineers say Turfinol D is a technology of the future with many commercial and industrial uses. The Navy used it, used it in a certain way for sonar devices, and submarines had used it uh, in military environments also. Um, the Department of Defense found discovered uh, through my reporting that uh, this substance had been had been stolen from the Naval Ordnance Laboratory and they had a student working, I referenced this earlier, a student named Hank Yu, who was in the United States at a university here working on this material while he was reporting back to his PLA, uh, People's Liberation Army and college professor back in Beijing what he was learning about the substance. It is dramatic espionage operation. Remarkable. An active investigation was conducted by U.S. government agencies, including the FBI, which declined to, to uh, talk about it. But uh, I was able to confirm that the government also documented other People's Republic of China attempts to obtain the Turfinel D process by espionage spelled out in a classified document. The Ames Laboratory confirmed that it had employed PRC students who attended Iowa State University, but that it was unable to provide any details. Government officials are concerned that technology transfers are occurring in the context of academic exchanges between scientists and students working to solve scientific problems. Let me tell you how that works. It, it is during such problem-solving discussions, experts say, that students from China or elsewhere are able to gain information that they take back to their home countries and advanced technologies there that, are, that often wind up in their weapon systems. We've discovered this. The J-22, uh, which was rolled out uh, under the Obama administration, the China's uh, J-22 was basically a lift of our stealth technology, which they got uh, involving another exotic material uh, called uh, uh, th that was uh, actually I shouldn't I probably shouldn't name that substance, but it was a substance that they sold another exotic material involving lanthanides. It was stolen from the United States uh, in, involving uh, neodymium and. Uh, uh, other uh, rare earth metals. We'll leave it at that. Uh, in fact, we found that uh, Gansu Chenjing Rare Earth Functional Materials Company 
founded in the PRC in June of 1998, according to company literature, claims that it had used a, a, a private company to and predicted its own technique to produce. Uh, it had ca called uh, Turf and LD by a different name, uh, TBDYFE series, giant magnetostrictive materials of high performance is how they re referred to the material. That was, that is Turf and LD. An official familiar with the U.S. investigation stated that it is unclear precisely when the PRC came up with Turf and LD or where they got it. Well, we know now. And we, we uncovered this through heavy investigative work. By the way, we, I post on these things uh, frequently on Twitter. If you follow us at NewsCap Group, at NewsCap Group, you can uh, see a lot of the stuff that we, we put out uh, on Twitter. But uh, we had one of the ways that, that China gains information from uh, through espionage it's that they use an entirely different brand uh, sort of espionage than the united states and western countries use they use a they call it a shotgun blast approach in other words they'll have thousands of people collecting tiny bits of data which they assemble in a sort of mosaic and that's how they get a predictive measure of what the United States is doing with regard to high technology and things like this. Well, one of the ways they do that is um, they take advantage of, they'll have like a 28 year old Chinese student who's like a doctoral student there, but because they look very young and they're, they're slim and uh, young looking, they can present them as an undergraduate student coming to study in the United States. Well, they're actually much further advanced than that. They're mature, more mature, me mentally mature, and they are able to, and they appear to universities, uh, professors and, and uh, university officials as being prodigies. They think, well, oh, this person's 19 years old and they understand this or that. And it makes it appealing. They want to know how does this person, you know, what is the potential for this person? Uh, academically, since they're so young and yet so brilliant. And that was one of the ways. And uh, another way is when we have exchanges, scientific exchanges with China, when uh, it's hard to imagine this, but you think about a problem. Once you solve a technical problem, in retrospect, it looks easy. It looks simple. And it obvious, well, it was there all the time. Well, Chinese scientists know this. And so they'll talk, be talking to an American scientist who's worked on a classified program. And the American scientist won't, or the, the scientist who's working for an American university won't know that they're revealing a secret. They'll just tell them. Well, oh, it was simple. You do this and this and this, or you have to you have to have your smelt furnace at eighteen hundred degrees, or whatever. The thing is, they don't realize that they're giving away important technology. That wraps it up for this hour of Through the Looking Glass. Thank you so much for joining us. Follow us at Newscap Group on Twitter or TNT Radio Through the Looking Glass. I'm Scott Wheeler signing off. <laughs>